Moroi, good morning. Last week we talked about the fact that we're all prejudiced, but I think this video shows us the effect in a small way of how much prejudice can hurt and damage people. This week in your life group material, you're going to see another video as well, which shows how prejudice has so deeply impacted children uh, to the point that they as little children feel ashamed by the color of their skin. And it's a mark of shame you see in that video that has been etched onto their psyche and will permanently affect the way that they see themselves and their own potential and, and their own value. The word Salborna, the greeting Salborna means, um, it comes from uh, the meaning, I see you. In fact, it means more than just I see you with my eyes. It, it has this connotation of all of me, my history, my ancestors, my experiences, my emotions, sees all of you, all of who you are. It's the most beautiful illustration, I think, of, of what we need to do to overcome prejudice. This past week, we remembered Nelson Mandela's birthday. Um, maybe many of you did your 67 minutes somewhere of something good, but I hope it was more than just 67 minutes of doing something good, making some sandwiches, handing them out, but that you also reflected in some small way or remembered the legacy of, of Mandela. I think in many ways his legacy was that legacy of seeing others, seeing beyond his own pain and his own the injustices done to him and really learning to understand and to empathize with others, I want to read you a quote about his time in Robben Island. He said, It was during those long and lonely years that my hunger for freedom, for the freedom of my own people, became the hunger for the freedom of all people, white and black. I knew as well as I knew anything um, that the oppressor... Oh, sorry, I've lost my second page... That the oppressor must be liberated as surely as the oppressed. A man who takes away another man's freedom is a prisoner of hatred. He's locked behind the bars of prejudice and narrow-mindedness. I am not truly free if I am taking away someone else's freedom. The oppressed and the oppressor alike are robbed of their humanity. So we spoke last week about the fact that prejudice is a natural human condition. We're not born prejudiced, but we are born with the inevitable propensity for it. And the things that we see and experience in our earliest childhood quickly teach us to separate us from them. Who is us? Who is them? Who is more valuable? Who is less valuable? And why? What does the Bible say about that? I want to take us back to the book of Leviticus, one of the earliest books in the Bible. But first, let me give you a little bit of background. About 2,000 years ago, God speaks to a man named Abraham and makes a promise to him that he will become the father of many nations. And God says that through his offspring, all nations, all peoples, all families of the earth will be blessed. What an amazing promise to look forward to. All families, all nations will be blessed through your offspring. But if we fast forward about 600 years, we find that Abraham's descendants are a slave nation under Ramesses II, the pharaoh of Egypt. They are a people who are disorganized, who are destitute, who are despised. They have no leadership, no education, 
no money, no resources. They're far from being the great nation that God promised. They're far from being able to fulfill a promise that God gave about being a blessing to all the world. But then God sends them this great liberator, the prophet Moses. And the most important thing that Moses did for the people was to lead them, to lead the nation to Mount Sinai, where God made a covenant with them that he would be their God and they would be his people. And there at Mount Sinai, he gave them his laws and his commandments, his, his uh, decrees. And his intention was that they should become a model of his kingdom, of his kingship here on earth, that they should be a people who were devoted to living out his values and his character and his, and his example in a world which was sick with sin. That was the point of the covenant. Now when God gave his laws to the Israelite people, he was pretty radical with them about keeping separate from the religions and the lifestyle and the influences of the nations that surrounded them because he didn't want them to be dragged in to those kinds of things. But how did he expect them to act towards people, towards foreigners who lived among them? What was supposed to happen when somebody of a different language or a different skin color or a different culture moved into your neighborhood? What did God expect you to do about that? Were the, the Israelites supposed to shun those people, say, no, you're foreigners? Were they supposed to make life uncomfortable so they moved away? Were they supposed to fight to maintain their racial purity? Did God expect them to keep separate, to be unwelcoming, to be inhospitable, to be bigoted, to be prejudiced? I know that sometimes we may have got that impression from what people have said about the Old Testament, but I want to look today at what God really says. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 and 34 says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Remember how you were treated in Egypt. Remember how you were demeaned, how you were crushed, how you were enslaved. Do not be like that. Give dignity to people who are different to you. Make them feel at home. Embrace them as your family. Love them as yourself. See them as I see them. That's not a once-off little verse. As you read through the Bible, you find this theme of inclusion applies not only to foreigners... But it's really a theme of, of justice and empathy and friendship and inclusion of everybody who's different. That they are all welcome. We are all welcome in God's kingdom. I think though, if we look at the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the term foreigners or those who are foreign, epitomize more than any, anybody else what it means to be other to the nation of Israel. These are the people who are most different in terms of their features, their language, their culture, their customs. And it's the Bible's statements about foreigners and how we are to treat foreigners that, foreigners that in those that we find most clearly God's heart for everyone, the fact that everyone is loved, is to be loved and to be included, not only those who I can easily identify with, not only those who look like me and sound like me and share similar values and culture, but more importantly, those who do not. Now, throughout history, power-hungry, greedy, bigoted people have routinely used the Bible 
to try and justify their prejudice and their discrimination and their privilege. And yet, honestly, as we read the Bible, the weight of Scripture right from the Old Testament to the New Testament reveals to us that the character of God and the will of God is demonstrated in inclusion and hospitality and justice for everyone. So five times in the Old Testament, God repeats this command not to mistreat um, or to um, or to oppress foreigners, but to love them. Twice, God instructs his people to use the same laws for the local, for native-born people, and for foreigners. He says everybody must be under the same laws. Repeatedly, he reminds us throughout the Bible to show hospitality to strangers, to foreigners, to the poor. Three times he curses people for not showing hospitality to foreigners or for showing injustice. Numerous times he reminds and he rebukes about favoritism. Old and New Testament, do not show favoritism towards people who are rich and prejudice towards those who are poor or to those favoritism towards those who are like you and prejudice against those who are not. God includes throughout the Bible laws, but especially in the Old Testament, that ensure the economic survival of foreigners and the poor. He announces that he himself is an advocate and a protector for the poor and for the foreigner. Now, if we jump ahead to to Jesus, we find that Jesus routinely associated with people who are outsiders, outcasts, prostitutes, tax collectors, Samaritans, all those groups that were shunned by religious Jews of his day. Yet Jesus was a friend to all of them. He didn't just make donations to their charities. He didn't just throw the odd kind word in their direction. He didn't just smile and wave. Jesus was frequently accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a friend to undesirables, to outcasts, to lepers, to people who everyone everyone else was revulsed, revulsed and disgusted by. Jesus hung out with them. Jesus ate with them. Jesus shared his laughter and his tears with them. But what was it like in the days of Jesus? Jesus lived about 1,400 years after God had made that covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. So if we, if we jump again 1,400 years ahead, and we, and we say it's a long time after God made this covenant, after God gave his people their land, the, this, the, land, the, the land of Israel to grow and flourish and to be an example to the nations around them of, among other things, fairness, justice, especially for foreigners and outcasts. How is Israel doing on that 1,400 years later after the original mandate? Well, the history books tell us that uh, from that time and, and even until today in some communities, devout Jewish men would pray every day these words. I thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. Yeah. Lots of debate on those those words on the internet, actually, whether we should still they should still say them or they shouldn't. But nowhere in the Bible do you find those words. Nowhere in the Bible, in fact, do you find women prohibited from education or public life or social or religious or political authority. In fact, we find the opposite. We find frequently throughout the Bible, more frequently than we would find in other cultures, 
women involved in leadership, whether it's Miriam or Deborah or Hilda, many others that are mentioned. But at the time of Jesus, devout Jews barred women from any significant role in society. They were ostracized. They despised anyone who was of mixed race. They would not associate with non-Jews or Gentiles. They would not eat with them. They would not share their plates or cups. They would not even enter their houses or invite them into their own houses. So much for loving the foreigners like your own family. So much for God's law. And yet Jesus, in the way he lived, was different in every single way. And he expected his, for, and he expected his followers to be different. And Jesus is still different in the way he sees people from the way the world sees people. And he still expects us as his followers to stand in contrast that our lives should be different. Our attitudes, our actions, our speech should be different to that of the world. And yet Jesus' disciples had some very serious prejudice issues. Just like some of us today have some very serious prejudice issues. We love to make Jesus fit our paradigms and the culture and even the church culture that we were brought up in, don't we? We love that domesticated, safe Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. If you're serving a Jesus who does not push you in the direction of people who are not like you, if the love of Jesus does not compel you to cross social boundaries, if the love of Jesus does not push you to befriend and identify with people whose lifestyles might otherwise revulse you and shock you, the criminal, the Muslim, the homosexual, the drug addict, the alcoholic, the adulterer, then you have not truly understood the love of Jesus. Perhaps you've never encountered the Jesus of the Bible. To befriend and to identify with and to see people with Jesus' eyes does not mean the same as agreeing with everything they do or believe. It is merely the attitude of Christ. I want to go back to the story of a man who we know quite well from the Bible. His name is Peter, the Apostle Peter. And Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends. He's someone who spent almost every waking hour with Jesus for about three years. Jesus, who, who went around making trouble everywhere by including people who were despised and rejected and making them his friends and loving them, and Peter was the one disciple who was with him through all of that. Peter was the one disciple who really seemed to understand concepts which the others were, were not getting. Here's a man who is recognized to be the leader of the church from the time that Jesus ascended to heaven until the time Peter himself was crucified. Here's a man of, of character and commitment and prayer. If anyone had understood what Jesus meant when he said, go into all the world and preach the good news to everybody, if, if anyone really realized that that meant everybody, not just the Jews, it should have been Peter. If anyone wasn't prejudiced, it should have been Peter. 
And yet the story in Acts chapter 10 is a story of Peter's struggle with his own prejudice. It's a story of a Roman military commander, a centurion whose name is Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Gentile. More than being a Gentile, you know, Gentiles were already prejudiced. Uh, the Jews were prejudiced against the Gentiles. But more than just being a Gentile, he's a Roman. Now the Romans, uh, Israel at that time was Roman-occupied territory. Romans represented the oppressor. Romans represented what white people in this country represented to black people during apartheid. It was the oppressor. The paradox is, as so often happens, Cornelius was actually a good man. He was a just man. He was, he was fair and godly, and he was generous, especially to those who were poor, even though he was a Roman. And so one day an angel comes to Cornelius and says, Cornelius, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So Cornelius sends some people down to find Peter and Joppa. And how do you think that's going to go down? They're going to invite Peter, uh, the Jew, to come to Cornelius' house, Cornelius the Roman Gentile. Obviously, any other Jewish person would not do it. They would not go into the house of a Gentile. But Peter was surely different. He'd been with Jesus. And yet he wasn't. He was just the same. Just like we so often, even though we are followers of Jesus and we've encountered Jesus and we love Jesus and we should be different, and so often we're not. We're just the same. So while the messengers are on their way to Joppa and it's a few hours or a day's journey, God has some serious stuff that he needs to do with Peter himself. And Acts chapter 10 tells us that, from verse 9, that Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He was a man of prayer. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice said to him a second time, Do not call anything impure um, that God had... Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. Immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. So the sheet comes down with all these animals. The voice says, Kill and eat. What kind of animals were in the sheet? Well, we can figure out from Peter's response that they were unkosher animals. Uh, there were animals that Jews were not allowed to eat. Maybe there was a pig there, maybe a camel, maybe a cat or a dog, a dassy or two, a lizard, a snake, um, a vulture. There were animals that Peter had always viewed as disgusting and unclean, just like he had viewed Gentiles and other people as disgusting. And unclean. And every time God's response to him is the same. Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. What's the meaning of this strange vision? Well, verse 19 says that while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. 
So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent, with, sent them. So Peter goes along with these men. He goes to Cornelius' house. And verse 27 says that when he went inside the house, he found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. Was it against God's law for Jews to associate with Gentiles? No, God had specifically instructed his people to love foreigners as their own family. But the customs of the day and the human regulations that the religious leaders had heaped on top of God's laws, those laws, those rules, those regulations forbade Jews from eating with Gentiles or even associating with them. So the customs of the Jews, of the Israelites of that day, were in complete opposition Completely disconnected from the words, the actual words of God. Now I wonder how, how about us? How often do we live believing we are people of faith, believing that we follow the Bible, and yet our customs and our history have disconnected us from the actual words of God? So Peter says, verse 28, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And then Cornelius tells him the story of the angel. And, and in this process, Peter has this kind of complete mindset shift, this complete paradigm shift. And he suddenly realizes that my traditions and my customs and my comforts are out of line with God's standards. Verse 34 says, then Peter began to speak. He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. You know that that's a quote from the Bible? That phrase appears six times in the Bible. Three times in the Old Testament, three times in the New Testament. And it took Peter this long to understand what it meant. And that God really meant that. And so Peter's like, okay. And he begins to share the gospel message with these Gentiles. And verse 44 says that while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all who'd heard the message. The circumcised believers who'd come with Peter, that's the Jews who'd come along with him, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now they're really struggling with prejudice, aren't they? They're in the home of people who love and serve God, the same God they serve. They're in the home of people where an angel has appeared. And yet because they're racially and culturally different, they are really struggling to get their heads around the fact that those people can also experience salvation and can also be filled with the Holy Spirit. And after this whole story, Peter goes back to the church in Jerusalem. And what does the church in Jerusalem say? Well done, Peter, for crossing a social cultural boundary. No. He gets criticized. Acts 11, he has to stand up and defend why he would even go into the house of a Gentile. The church is like, whoa, you did something that only Jesus would do, I guess. And he has to defend himself. 
And you would think maybe like the picture of the cigar, that once we've seen a person differently, we can never unsee them that way. And, and hopefully that's part of the message. Once we've seen prejudice in ourselves, once we've seen the person behind you know, the prejudice that we have, we can no longer see them like we used to. And yet Galatians chapter 2 tells us that because of the pressure of some of the Jewish Christians, it became so uncomfortable for Peter that he said, you know what, he just went back to his old ways. He said, I'm not going to associate with Gentiles. I'm not going to eat with them. I'm just going to stick to the Jews. Shun them. And, and the Apostle Paul had to call him out in it. And he says in Galatians 2, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, for he was in the wrong. For before certain men had come from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid. Surely Peter would have known better. Surely after all his time with Jesus, after that experience with Cornelius and his family, after all his knowledge of Scripture and the multiplicity of God's commands to include and love those who are foreign and different and awkward, if anyone should have known, it would have been Peter. Surely in our country at least, black people would never be prejudiced against any foreign national because they too understand what it means to be oppressed and cast out and unable to get employment. Surely they remember what it's like to lose everything through no fault of your own. Surely they would have no prejudice. Surely, at least in our country, Indian and colored people would never be prejudiced against black people because they too suffered under the apartheid system and they would understand. And surely white Afrikaners would never act with prejudice against anyone because surely they must remember that their ancestors fled from Europe to escape persecution there. Surely they remember the prejudice of the English, of the British against them in the 1800s that led to the, to the Great Trek. Surely they remember how they were maligned and mistreated after the Boer War by the British. Surely they would never treat anybody else that way. Surely the English would never treat any other race, mistreat any other race either. After all, they should remember their little island has been conquered by wave after wave of oppressive regimes. The Romans, the Germans, the Vikings, the Danish, the French, the Dutch. Surely the suffering and the oppression in the memory of the English should stand as a warning never to do it to another race. Surely no Christian who's ever been sidelined for their faith would ever do the same to a Muslim. Surely no child who's ever been bullied would laugh at somebody else because of their weight or their disability or their accent. Surely no man who's been embarrassed or insulted at the office would come home and do the same to his wife or wife to her husband. But, Bazalwani, the old maxim is true, that when the power shifts, the oppressed becomes the oppressor. Because for all of us, prejudice is rooted deep in our hearts. But Jesus has the power to change our hearts. Jesus has the power to replace fear with love. And anger with patience and disgust 
with appreciation and solidarity. The Bible tells us the way we will know that if Jesus is in our hearts, if if God's Spirit is working in our hearts the way we will know that, is that we will love other people, not certain other people, or other people. And the Bible tells us that if we do not love them, surely we do not love God either. 1 John 4 verse 20, Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, who they have not seen. If we say we follow Jesus, then overcoming our prejudice is not an optional extra. It is an essential part of our journey. And if we continue to nurture attitudes of hatred and disgust and anger and fear towards people who are made in the image of God, it will always stand in the way of the spread of his kingdom. And it will continually water it down, continually bring it into disrepute, and we will continue to dehumanize ourselves in the process. There's only one way out. And that is to take that journey with Jesus, to commit to a journey with him of listening really listening and understanding and of learning to love people, to see people as he sees them. In God's eyes, it's, prejudice is not okay. It should never be okay in our eyes either. God sees you for who you really are, your warts and all. He knows your sin. He knows all the disgusting things you've done. And he loves you and he embraces you and he calls you to do the same for everybody else. So when you're on the road and, and you see a taxi and you feel the emotion rising, when you greet a, a person or don't greet a person based on what they're wearing or their skin color, or when you lock your door or put up your window at the, at the robots, or you avoid your gay colleague or you pass a comment about a fat person, check your heart and invite the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to help you look again with the eyes of Jesus at the other person and appreciate them the way he does. The person behind your prejudice is a person just like you. Won't you bow your heads and pray with me, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Father God, we ask that you will transform our hearts. So many of us are so locked into the things we've always been told and always been taught, and the subtle messages we've always received. And we pray that you will soften our hearts and help us to see the person as a person, to really see them. And just like that picture, once we've seen them, that we would never be able to unsee them. In your name.